Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Sustainability Now here on Forward Radio, where your community radio station, WFMP LP Louisville, we broadcast from the top of the historic Hayburn Building here at 106.5 FM. You can also find us online at forwardradio.org, and that's a great place to go to become a part of this community radio station, which is of, by, and for the people. You know, it only takes two things to make community radio, people and a little bit of money. And we need both of them right now in this season of giving as you're thinking about your year-end giving. Please maybe find a little room under your holiday tree for Forward Radio. Chip in what you can to help keep us on the air for another year. You know, coming up in April, it will mark our fourth anniversary of being on the air. And that is all thanks to you all chipping in. We don't have any big grants. We don't have any commercials. We don't have advertising on this station. We just have folks like you who enjoy this program, appreciate hearing things you won't hear anywhere else on the dial, and are willing to support it with your hard-earned dollars. So consider making a year-end tax-deductible contribution to Forward Radio right now at forwardradio.org. And whether you have any funds to give or not, we'd love your time, talents. Uh, We need people to make this radio a reality. So go to forwardradio.org, click on participate, pitch us a show, or maybe get involved behind the scenes. Either way, behind the scenes or behind the microphones, we'd love to have you. Well, my name is Justin Mogg, and what we're doing on Sustainability Now for this very special final week of the year is taking a little retrospective look back at some of the highlights of the year. And one big highlight for me uh, was the November 14th annual chapter meeting of the Kentucky Sierra Club, which featured a great talk that I think really put a pin in uh, all of the goings on this year with uh, the pandemic, uh, climate change, social justice and racism at the top of the agenda. Uh, And it was a talk by Dr. Carolyn Finney author of Black Faces, White Spaces. Now, Dr. Finney is a storyteller, author, and cultural geographer. The aim of her work is to develop greater cultural competency within environmental organizations and institutions to challenge media outlets on their representation of difference and to increase awareness of how privilege shapes who gets to speak to environmental issues and determine policy and action. And I could not think of a more important message for us to end the year on. So I'm really delighted now to take you back to November 14th to share with you this wonderful talk from Carolyn Finney. She starts out by explaining her connections to Kentucky right here on Forward Radio. I don't know if all of you know this, but I lived in Lexington for four years. I mean, I moved to Burlington last year and I moved here because I'm doing up, I'm a scholar in residence at Middlebury College in their Franklin Environmental Center. But you know, I kind of miss Lexington. I didn't know I'd say it, but it's true. Anyway, so I'm really happy to be back with all of you. So here's what I'm going to do. I like to put a lot of stuff on the table. It's like stuff in the pot. I'm going to tell some stories about the stuff, what's on my mind, my own perspective, history, moments you know, stuff from the book. I'm just pulling a lot of stuff together. So I got to tell you all, my book came out about six years ago. And before that, I, had a, I was really intentional about how I've been trying to pull together my background in the arts. You know, I returned to school, but how do I create a kind of public platform to have these conversations? Not, not only tell stories, but actually use storytelling as a way to get at what's really hard. I, you know, usually I'm standing in front of a room of predominantly white folks 
in my brown skin. And, you know, I just call it immediately. <laughs> I'm just like, and yes, I'm black, you know, and I smile because it's like, you know, the thing is, what I hope is that we all have skin in the game. What I can say for sure is that I definitely have skin in the game. And so I want to talk about that a little bit. But first, for me, whenever I'm having this conversation, I always have to consider the current context. And I'm willing to bet that the one thing we can agree on today, all of us, even if we don't agree on a lot of the things that I'm saying or we think about what I'm saying differently, which is totally welcome and great, is that we got three huge things going on at least, right? We've got this election that has revealed what I believe has always been true, the divisions that exist between us in terms of how we live our lives and what we value and how we show up and how we believe we might move forward. You know, George Floyd got murdered and, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement took that on in a very particular way. There's nothing new there. You know, this is 400 years. And so for me, it's more about the legacy of that in that moment and the reason that George Floyd got murdered at the end of the day. And we're living for the first time in this country for, for most of us, unless we're significantly older, you know, through a pandemic. You know, and this thing, I mean, I don't know about you, but I definitely got pandemic fatigue, right? And it's really challenging. Um, and it's really scary as well. So I put up, I call this slide three steps um, because the other day, not the other day, the other last week, and I got obsessed with CNN. I was like watching the news 24 seven, like a lot of people were around the election. Congressman James Clyburn from, he's African-American, he's from South Carolina. He was being interviewed a lot. And one of the things he said, he said, quote, if the distance between my opponent and me is five steps, I don't mind taking three of them. And I loved that. I love that. I love the agency. I love the intention. I love the idea that, you know, when I think about my work, it's about how do I meet people where they are and that I don't mind taking three steps. But what would it mean if all of us didn't mind taking three steps? And what would that look like? And particularly when we're talking about race, other issues of difference, power, privilege, the environment, land, all the stuff that comes with that, some of what I'm going to talk about today. What does that look like? And what does that look like right now with all this stuff going on at the same time? Um, now, this is going to look like that I'm taking a left turn somewhere, but just stay with me for a second. So I won't give away any spoilers in case you haven't watched Lovecraft Country. I was blown away by the series. And one of the reasons I was blown away about it, you know, it looks at the work of H.P. Lovecraft, who does a lot of science fiction and what they call weird fiction. And it's a story set in about the 40s and 50s. And if I didn't have any color in it, in terms of race, you say it's about this family and this group of people who are discovering they have magic and witches in their background and all this stuff is going on and they're on their Indiana Jones adventure and all this stuff is happening. Except the one big difference is the primary characters are all black. And in the opening episode, what really blew me away was, you know, so I believe that they started out in Chicago and they had to drive to Massachusetts. Now, remember, this is like 1940s, 1950s, so it's Jim Crow segregation. And so as they're all piling into the car, this kind of family, this kind of created family, chosen family, the woman who's going to stay back with some of the smaller kids, you know, they're getting in the car, they get excited about this adventure. She says, well, let's go over the list and make sure you have everything in the car. And she's naming everything they have to have because she's really referencing the Green Book, the idea that as a Black person in the 1940s and 50s, you couldn't just drive across the country without really thinking about where you might, you may, may find no place to stay, you may find nothing to eat, a restaurant that you can go to, so you're going to have to pack your car and you can go ahead and have your adventure. It was so nonchalant because they didn't make it like that wasn't the major point of the story, but that was the reality because the characters were Black, which doesn't mean they weren't any less excited, afraid, courageous, all the things that the lead characters do when they're about, you know, they're going to go off on this adventure. There was another moment in there when they, and, and I'm, this isn't the first episode where they're driving, they're almost made it to their destination. It's about 7 p.m. at evening and a white state trooper pulls them over. 
to let them know this is a sundown town, which is a real thing, right? The idea that if it's if the sun goes down at seven and you're black and you're still in this town, you better not be because <laughs> we're coming after you. And that moment where they realize that, and then they eventually end up in some woods where they see some big, actual, ugly monsters. And for me, it was like, yes, you've got the monsters in the woods and you've got the everyday monster of racism and how that shows up right in our systems, in our relationships and our behaviors and is embedded in a very particular way in the soil. And sometimes for me, when we talk about nature and the environment, it's interesting historically how it gets kind of left out of the conversation is that's somehow a universal place we can all be. And once we enter that kingdom of nature, somehow that's going to just fall away. And what many of us have known for a very long time, it doesn't. Just like these people driving across country, it didn't matter that they were on this adventure. They were, they were always reminded of how their skin played a role, their skin color, you know, and how they could show up at that time and how they had to kind of duck and weave through the landscape. You know, what does it mean to be part of this country, this moment? What does it mean to be Black, right, and have these conversations? And what I always say to everyone, I always like to say that, you know, we're all biased because we all are biased. And bias isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just a, it's a, I call it the subjectivity of perspective, right? And we bring that perspective to bear upon anything it is we're trying to understand. And for me, that reigns true in the conversation about nature and the environment as well. We bring it. We're just going to, we kind of bring what we know to the table. Um, and I'm no different, right? And so I always like to start off, you know, I'm trying very briefly where I got that experience and I mean that perspective about nature from because it shapes everything I do and I take it with me wherever I go, which I'm sure the rest of you do too. So the story I always tell is that, you know, these are my parents, Henry and Rose. This is a picture from the 1950s. They grew up in Floyd, Virginia. They grew up poor. They had a high school education, big families. When my dad came back from the Korean War, um, he tried to get a job. He said he saw a park ranger in a park ranger uniform in the state of Virginia, and he thought, this looks like a great government job. And when he went in, he said what they told him was, I'm sorry, we don't hire Negroes. So my father and my mother, much like many other African-Americans at that time in the South, decided to migrate north to see if they would have better job opportunities. My parents went to New York, and my father had two job offers. One, he could be a janitor in Syracuse, New York, which is about five hours north of New York City, or about 30 minutes outside of New York City in Westchester County, there was a very large estate, about 12 acres, owned by a wealthy Jewish family, and they needed full-time people to live on that estate and care for it. And that's the job my father took, stunning piece of property. There's a lake, a swimming pool, well, it's a pond, vegetable gardens, fruit trees, just stunning. The owners came up on weekends and holidays. So this is where I started. My parents wanted to have kids. They thought they couldn't have kids, so they adopted me. And then what I like to say is they relaxed and had my two brothers. So during the week, especially when their original owners weren't there, it's like we had one of this place like it was our private park. We all knew how to swim by the time we were seven years old. We had to because there was water on the property. There's woods on this property. We were outside all the time. There's our long driveway. So riding our bike outside, this was really my first experience. I mean, this was just, you know, for me natural to be outside all the time and really enjoy and appreciate it the way you can as a kid, right? Um, up on reflection, I feel that privilege even more. I also tell the story about when I was nine years old walking home from school. And this was an all-white neighborhood and very, very wealthy. Harry Winston had property down the street. Golf, um, Wingfoot Golf Club was around the corner. Schaefer of Schaefer Beer lived next door. I don't know. Some of the older folks remember Schaefer Beer um, lived next door. We thought it was a castle they lived in. It was all stone. Kind of incredible. We were the only family of color in this neighborhood until the 90s. And, and a Japanese-American woman moved in. She was there for a few years and moved out. So we stood out in very particular ways. I went to a public school, as did my brothers, in Mamaroneck Public School. I was walking home, fourth grade, right around the corner from the house. There were always policemen in cars patrolling the neighborhood, which was just a two-lane road, basically. When you got out of the town and out of the village of Mamaroneck, it just became this simple sort of two-lane road. 
And uh, I remember getting stopped by a policeman and the policeman asking me where I was going. And I'm give, I give him the address. I say a thousand old White Plains Road. And he just looked at me and he said, oh, do you work there? You know, <laughs> I just remember thinking in my head, no, that's kind of bizarre. Like I'm coming home from school. And I just, what I said to him was, no, I live there. And he let me go. I get home. I tell my father, he gets really mad. He calls the police station. He gives them hell. They never stop me and my brothers again. But as an adult, I have to like flash back on that a little bit, right? I have to look at that and go, what was not natural about? I had the school bag. I was small. I had time of day coming home from school. The logics were all in place. Why would he ask me if I worked there? Is that the only way that I could be in this beautiful place is if I worked there, right, through labor? I want to jump ahead a little bit to the 90s. Now, the, the, the patriarch of the family had died many years early, but the matriarch was still alive, but she was very sick. At this point, my parents have been caring for the land for 40 years. And she started to think about what's going to happen to my family. Now, to her credit, she thought about trying to keep them on this land. This land was worth over $3 million at the time. Property taxes were over $125,000 a year. My dad had been making something like $25,000 a year. It wasn't going to work to keep them on. And for multiple other reasons in terms of how they would break up this land from the two houses, et cetera, et cetera. So she had a house built for them in Leesburg, Virginia. And the reason she did it at this point, me and my brothers were grown. My youngest brother was married with kids living in Leesburg. I was moving around too much, as was my other brother. My parents got this beautiful house, actually. When the matriarch passed away, she had my father by her bedside. It's a complicated relationship. The new owner came on and my parents stayed on the land until 2003 because the new owner still needed to find a new family and he eventually found somebody from the Dominican Republic. So now at this point, my parents have been caring for this land for nearly 50 years, right? 50 years. So they moved down to their new house. Their new house is on about a half an acre of land. What I watched happen, this is at the point where I had started my doctoral degree, right? And I had been looking at Nepal and conservation and women's issues. And I, this is where it got really personal for me where I shifted and said, I'm going to look at African-Americans and race and environment right here at home. Because I watched my dad in particular get really depressed and talk about missing this land. Then they received a copy of a letter from the Westchester Land Trust. And the Land Trust, and I have a copy of the letter, had, said, had pictures of the estate. And they wanted to let everybody in the neighborhood know that a conservation easement had now been placed on this piece of land. Which, as most of you probably know, means that in perpetuity, nothing can be changed. It talked about where the property sits in the watershed, the wildlife on the property. You know, all the trees and the plants and the reason it should be protected. At the end of the letter, it thanked the new owner for his conservation mindedness, and he'd been on the land for about three years. There was nothing in the letter thanking the people who'd cared for that land for nearly 50 years. And just like that, they were erased from the environmental history. And that's really where it got deep for me, the idea of who's, you know, I started asking questions like whose ownership counts. I started thinking about all the people in the history of this country who've become invisible on the landscape, who've been engaged, concerned, either through labor, through love, through traditional ownership, um, through simply proximity to place, have always been there, but are never in the conversation or rarely in the conversation and definitely are not, are often written out of history so much so that we get to the myth of black and brown people don't, and you can fill in the blanks, right? There's a hundred things we could write in there. And most of those things aren't true because black and black, black and brown people, just like everybody else, I would say do just about everything, right? But we have to consider, if you think of Lovecraft Country again, the context within which they're doing it and who gets to prioritize what values, what point of view, what experiences, what stories count. Now, and who gets to be in the decision-making positions to decide? Who gets to represent? What stories are we telling on screen? You know, when I think about predominantly white environmental organizations, which is most of the big ones, right? It's not that I think that anybody in there is bad. You know, nobody can help the skin they were born in. What concerns me is, you know, if you think about everybody's just operating from their own experience, 
if they're not able to see something different, how are they going to do something different when it comes to questions of diversity? And so what do we have to do there? Now there's a gate on the driveway. My parents said we all tried a few years ago to go up and visit and we couldn't even get on the land anymore. So one of the things I think about is this idea of convergence of this moment. And for me, we've always been converging, but there's something about 2020, right? A friend of mine said, you know, it's like 2020 vision, right? Because we're seeing so many things, in my opinion, more starkly than we have in the past, in part because many of us are forced to be at home. We have to operate very differently out in the world. The question of systemic racism, which has always been there, I want to be really clear about that, but for some reason is coming to a head. In, in a very particular way right at this moment. And also the question of climate change. I mean, there's so many, I didn't even put that image up there, but that's also in the mix, right? So, you know, these images here are representations of enslavement and immigrants trying to cross the border and Japanese internment and native people being removed from the land. And that famous picture of John Muir and um, President Roosevelt, in 1903, an overhanging rock in Yosemite National Park. You know, and I, I, when I first saw that picture and of Gifford Pinchot as well, right? But when I first saw the picture of John Muir, you know, I thought, well, they must be having like an incredible conversation. When I think about you know, I lived in Northern California for eight years from about 2007 to about 2014. And I actually never thought about John Muir before that, with the exception of in my dissertation work that I had to look at it. So I would say before 2000, I'd never thought about John Muir at all. I couldn't have told you what the Wilderness Act was. I actually, that had no, it's, as far as I could see, that had no impact on my life. I didn't under, I, even though I had been backpacking all around the world and it doesn't matter, you know, I had been out in nature, so to speak, but I just didn't think about it. I think about what the conversation they must be having and my interest is never in diminishing the conversation. It's actually expanding the conversation because you have to recognize they were two white men at a very particular time with very particular set of privileges who had a point of view. But I also have to ask the question, what else was going on at the same time? That they were around the time they were having this conversation, around the time Gifford Pinchot was thinking about conservation, you know, as a form of, co you know, management of the resources for our use, what else was going on? And actually, I always like to go back a little bit, because I like to go back to 1862. This is when I started thinking of the Homestead Act. For me, this is, in terms of the United States, is where our, you know, our relationship to land really got shaped in a very particular way, right? We had uh, that gun going off at midnight. We had, if you, for the most part, if you were a European immigrant, you were able to go out, put your stake down on 160 acres. And if you stayed on that 160 acres for up to five years and you farmed and you, you built a home, you could have that land. It was yours, free and clear. That's incredible. That can't happen anywhere anymore at all, right? And land is never just about land. It's about economic and political power. It's about legacy. You have got something to pass down to your family, right? It's about the right to be able to say you belong here. And how often have we heard that in today's world when people say, I belong here, this is my land, and the power to say that. But there's also two truths we can never fully, fully get away from. One, this land was stolen. People were killed and or removed in order for that land to be stolen and become available for those European immigrants. And two, we enslaved another group of people to build the backbone of our economy on the land. Those are ugly truths, right? But I don't care how far we get down the road, those two things will always be true, right? And that's part of the legacy I feel we're living in now. And I'm not interested in diminishing the experience of European immigrants. Something like 60% of them never didn't survive that, even with those 160 acres, because it was hard work. You could, you could die from the flu. You could die from loneliness because your closest neighbor was 100 miles away. And many of them left incredibly difficult circumstances and took incredible risk to come over here and create a new life. And I, I got to give them props for that, right? I get that. But it is complicated. That simple, dominant narrative of manifest destiny and we built our civilization 
without talking about the loss for so many other people and how so many other people could not integrate and participate in the same way. You had a handful of African-American homesteaders, but for the most part, they couldn't. Three years later, Emancipation Proclamation, enslaved Africans are freed. They're given 400,000 acres of land. And then white plantation owners said, what have we done? We just gave people, we enslaved 400,000 acres of land and land isn't just about land. It is about economic and political power. It is about legacy. It is about the right to say that you belong. I don't think so. We're taking all that land back. And I'm, I'm simplifying the story still but also try to, to sort of address that complexity about where you stand in the conversation to understand how we got here today in this way. So when people, for me, talk about the idea that some of this is new, there's unique characteristics to this moment, but the legacy of systemic racism as it, and as it relates very particularly to the environment is not new, right? I don't get surprised, unfortunately, when Christian Cooper, the black gay bird watcher, tried to walk into Central Park and tell a white woman that she needs to keep her dog on a leash so that the, the birds are protected, that what she did was weaponize his skin color against him. She didn't just say, I'm gonna call the police or you know, mind your business or anything she could have said. What she said was, I'm going to let them know that an African-American man is doing it. You know, and I'm not saying Amy Cooper's a bad person. That, that conversation is way too easy and it lets a lot of people off the hook. I'm saying <laughs> that something in her understood that whatever she was feeling in that moment, that, that had some weight and some power over Christian Cooper in a very particular way. There's a legacy of that. It goes all the way back to the Fugitive Slave Act and even before that, the right to be able to call it out. And I think it's in our collective DNA in a very particular kind of way. And if we don't face it, right and don't reconcile with that we are just going to go further down the road it's a band-aid solution as far as i'm concerned so there's something about this moment that gives us an opportunity which doesn't mean it isn't hard work right and i will remind everyone that for a lot of people it's always been hard right it's always been hard this isn't about anybody being comfortable right but how can we be it together another example of something contemporary that happened a couple of years ago that i like to share is a post a couple of years ago on Facebook that I got from Vanessa Garrison. Vanessa Garrison and Morgan Dixon are two Black women who started what is now the largest nonprofit in the country that focuses on Black women's health. It's called Girl Trek, an amazing organization. And one of the focuses they have is getting Black women in the outdoors and, and, and also, you know, enjoying the health benefits that getting out non-human nature can bring you. She was in Rocky Mountain National Park out in Colorado. And what she wrote was, when I have a little more time to clear my head, I'm going to write a longer piece about being pulled over in the National Park while I was driving a van full of Black women down the mountain after experiencing a magical hike together. I'm going to tell you about the park police officer who approached my van with his hand on his gun, and he demanded I roll down the back window so he could see who's inside. I'm going to tell you how he accused me of being drunk, asked me what I was doing in the park, and then told me if I cooperated, he wouldn't give me a ticket. A ticket for what, I asked. Driving too close to the car in front of you, that's a crime in Colorado. I led three advanced hikes over the course of three days this last weekend. I've personally brought hundreds of black women to Rocky Mountain National Park over the past four years. I've organized trips at every park in the country, inspired thousands of more to take a step into the great outdoors. I was on the cover of Outside Magazine, starred in a Christmas commercial for REI, partnered with the Sierra Club to train outdoor trip leaders, was named a Yosemite National Park ambassador, and yet this man was asking me what I was doing in the park asked me while still holding his hand to his gun, despite seeing our hiking gear when we rolled the windows down. Asked me what I was doing there as if he wasn't standing on stolen land and I was somehow trespassing. This is why I turned down opportunities to speak on diversity and inclusion in the outdoors. No, I don't wanna be on your panel. No, I don't wanna write an article or give a quote. No, I don't believe that things are changing. 
diversity and inclusion. How about decolonization and reparations? When you want to talk about that, I'll be ready. In the meantime, we'll be back at the park next year, thinking we'll bring a thousand Black women this time. Thinking I'll pack a fried chicken sandwich and wrap it in foil and then eat it at the lake next time because I can. Thinking I'll listen to some Tupac while I take in the views. Thinking I'll do whatever I want because I can. Because I have a right to be here. Because you won't scare us off. I belong here. We belong here. And I'm just jumping in here to remind you that you're tuned in to Forward Radio and Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, and we are listening back in this final week of the year to one of the highlights from 2020, a lecture by Dr. Carolyn Finney, author of Black Faces, White Spaces, given at the November 14th annual chapter meeting of the Kentucky Sierra Club. And we're going to return you to that now here on Forward Radio. So I kind of want to talk about a few things from my book. Some of it are history stories. Some, some of them are personal history stories. But I always kind of like to be transparent about what I kind of take with me or have taken with me in this work. And so there, I'm always carrying different things around it with me. You know, front and center is George Floyd and the, the COVID, COVID-19 right now. I'm influenced by a lot of different voices. It doesn't mean it's all Black voices. Some of it, I mean, I, I love me some Carl Sagan. I wish I had a chance to meet Carl Sagan while he was still alive. And sometimes it's movements and it's ideas and it's feelings that I get from different voices that influence me. And sometimes it's pictures and voices that I wish weren't there, but just simply will not go away. So they're, But they're there as well. So I'm influenced in a lot of different ways. So I started the book and I called it Bamboozle. So I purposefully borrowed from Spike Lee a lot of the chapter titles after names of his movies, in part because at, when I was working on this as a dissertation, I go to the library and I could hardly find anything about Black people in the environment on the shelves. I found some stuff about environmental justice as you know narrowly defined as bad things that happen to Black people in relation to the environment. But Black people aren't only the bad things that happen to them in the environment, right? No group of people are. And so I was like, where else do I have to look? We may not have been allowed traditionally in places like academic institutions that create knowledge about ourselves, but that doesn't mean we haven't been creating knowledge about ourselves, right? Uh, as, particularly as it relates to nature. And so I started looking elsewhere like film, art, memoir, newspapers, clippings, anything that I could find out there. Um, and Bamboozle is really just what I've been saying. It's just how I think we have this dominant narrative and what we've left out. And I'm focusing very particularly on African-Americans, but boy, we could be talking about people of Asian descent when I think about um, the, 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 um, the Chinese and the Chinese Exclusion Act and 3,000 Chinese building the railroad and being left out of the final picture on the Golden Spike. There are so many instances where we've done this to so many different kinds of people, right? And I think we've been bamboozled and we lose something. And there's a legacy of that as well. We lose something because of that. I also talk a lot about the question of representation. You know, when President Obama, as the first self-identified African-American president, came into office, we started watching how the conversation shifted really explicitly. The conversation, I would argue, has always been different implicitly, but explicitly, we had people like Glenn Beck, a conservative talk show host, talking about Obama's Planet of the Apes. We had a woman who was, a, I think she was a mayor, a ransom organization in West Virginia, calling Michelle Obama an ape in heels. We had Sean Delonis, a cartoonist for the New York Post, who had created this cartoon when the stimulus bill came out of a dead chimpanzee, stimulus bill pinned to his chest, two white cops with smoking guns standing over it. And you don't have to look hard for it. It was everywhere. The references were everywhere. And the references were, they really go back in history to really understand in the late 1800s in this country when we're trying to build a sense of ourselves, who are we, right? What's, what kind of civilization do we want to be? We would have these world's fairs. And the world's fairs were supposed to be kind of incredible, right? How are we going to be innovative? What are the new ideas? How are we going to become closer to God? What does that look like? At these world's fairs, they had black and brown people on display, right? So it's really complicated. 
The American Museum of Natural History in New York City, which is my favorite museum, it's the first museum I've ever gone to. So I have a soft place in my heart for it, you know. At around the same time, they discovered Odebenga. Odebenga was a young black man. They discovered him. He was from the Congo. They brought him back. They put him on display at the American Museum of Natural History. He was alive as a representative of the missing link. And then because they thought enough people wouldn't see him, they moved him to the primate exhibit at the Bronx Zoo. And people protested. And so they eventually took him out of there, but the damage had been done. And there are plenty of stories of this, right? So if you know anything about your history, that trauma, that scarring, that mistrust of public institutions, the ability to represent Black people in a way that sees them not simply as Black, but as fully human, right? You have to understand it's 400 years. The other thing that I want to say here is that I want to go back to how I mentioned the Wilderness Act earlier and how I never thought of it. But even as a kid, I had some understanding of the Civil Rights Act, right, in 1964. I mean, I didn't really understand deeply what it meant, but because my family was really, they, they felt that it was going to have personal impact on their ability, right, as they came out of living in the Jim Crow world to be Black and maybe have more opportunities and it meant more opportunities for their kids. I had some basic understanding of it. When I started doing this research, I realized the Wilderness Act was in the same year. I said, this is really incredible. Those are two really powerful pieces of legislation that came out at the same time with two groups of people who aren't talking to each other. Now, I understand, you know, they, you know, Harold Zanizer and his people, I mean, everybody was busy and focused. But if you actually read those two pieces of legislation, it's really interesting. The Civil Rights Act is a little better at thinking more expansively about civil rights and space and place, but they're still not talking about non-human nature and the environment, not really. Right, it's there, it's implied, but they're not talking about it. Howard Zanizer is not talking at all about civil rights and difference. He's using universal language about what we all should be able to do and how we might engage and respect wilderness. You know, and very thoughtful, I would say. But again, it's like, let's go back to Lovecraft country. Who is he talking about? From whose perspective is this? Because it's a nice idea, but I'm sorry if you have non-white skin and not even, because whiteness in itself is diverse. So depending on, you know, if you're more particular, it might mean something different if you're Italian-American or if you're Jewish or if you're Irish-American. I mean, you know, it's complicated about from where you stand, from where you have this point of view that is, can you really do this? As though to drive this point home, a friend of mine in Canada sent me a copy of an article. It was an academic article about a white professor back in the 50s who was friends with this black couple who wanted to go to a national park. But because it was the 1950s, he thought, you know what, we better not go anywhere in the United States. Let's go over the border to Fundy Bay National Park in Canada. So he wrote the superintendent there. He said, I'm bringing this black couple that I know. They're very cultured and educated. I want to be sure. And the fact that he had to explain that, I'm just saying. But he did because of the times. And he said, I just want to be sure they're treated with respect. When the superintendent finally wrote him back, he said, I can't make that promise to you. I'm sorry, because we get a lot of American visitors here. The couple was Dr. Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King who wanted to take a break from the civil rights work in order to get that respite in the wilderness that Howard Zanizer and his people were saying should be the right of everyone. One of the things that came up a lot when I was talking to black people around the country, particularly older folks, was the power of memory. So kind of two stories that I just want to say here and how memory plays a part in shaping the way, well, who do people trust? Who do they trust to tell them where they will be safe? You know, the whole beauty of the Green Book was, well, not even the Green Book, 
I looked at Ebony Magazine, you know, which is a, a mainstream magazine primarily targeted to sort of middle class African-American life. And we had Ebony and Jet on our coffee table. So I remember that. But when I looked at it as a researcher, I went back from the beginning. They used to have in the summer the supplement on getting outside in the outdoors and where you could go. And they showed black people horseback riding and hiking and outdoors and swimming. I was like, oh, my God, and going to the parks. But in that supplement, it was telling you where you might be able to stay, what towns you might not be able to go to. Like, it was really amazing. So yes, they were telling you go and showing pictures of black families out there doing their thing in nature, but also, you know, cause you're black. <laughs> Here's the reality about how you do that. And you have to think about that. In 2005, I was living in Atlanta and I tell this story. So I, I'm writing this up as a dissertation and thinking about this, or at least I'm pretending to write it up because there were moments I was just stressed out all the time. And I got my parents to come visit me. And my father, ever since that initial experience with being turned down for a job at the Park Service, you know, he really has a thing about the National Parks. He's just held on to it a long time. And even when I became a National Parks advisor, and I was there for doing it for eight years, you know, so my goal was, you know, he couldn't understand why I was doing what I was doing. I said, I'm inviting them to Atlanta and they, they don't like to travel, but I, I'm going to give them a black park experience because I'm going to make a difference. <laughs> They're going to see, you know, the parks, there's potential here, you know. Dr. Martin Luther King National Park, National Historic Site, I should say. Some of you, I'm sure, know it. Um, Dr. King, the house Dr. King grew up in, Ebenezer Baptist Church is on the street. People live on the street. Um, the visitor center was set up at the time of dioramas. And when you walk in, at least at that time, there were all these images from the 50s and 60s and life-size statues of people protesting and marching and voices coming over the loudspeaker. Some of them were Dr. King or police officers' voices. And you just, you were, I think they were trying to give you that full sensory experience, right? It was just like you're inundated with it. All the artifacts were from that time. So everything you're seeing on display was from that period of time, the 50s and the 60s. My mom kind of wandered off, but I'm standing with my dad in front of one of these images. We're looking at all these old photographs and suddenly my father, Henry Finney, who is not a touchy-feely dude and actually always kind of scares me in just some way. I flash back to being a little girl when I'm around him because he's just like scary. Suddenly grabbed my arm. And when he grabbed my arm, what I first thought had happened was that he was having a heart attack. That's what I tell people because I looked at him and his face got kind of white, got pale. And then within seconds after that happening, he pointed. And what he pointed to was a sign. And the sign said, for whites only. And at that point he giggled, and, but I didn't, I wasn't connecting. I was like, what's happening? My father's giggling, he don't do that either. He pointed to the sign, he said, I saw that sign and for a minute I thought we weren't supposed to be here. He was grabbing my arm to get me out. And while I've told that story 100, 200 times, when I allow myself for it to sink in, it actually makes me emotional because it was the first time I really understood what he's been carrying around his entire life. He expressed it through anger and it, unfortunately that fell on his children in a very particular way. But I understood that vulnerability, that place of fear, that as a black person, that as a black man, he was carrying there. And I got a glimpse into that. And the thing is, even though it had been like 40 years since he experienced that sign for real, that sign doesn't have to be there for that to still be going on. And I think that's what a lot of us have been saying. We don't have to see a sign because there are all kinds of signs we can be looking for. And we've become really good at recognizing what they might be, which doesn't mean that sometimes we don't get it wrong, okay? One of the things that I also like to do is, is tell some sort of stories of black people who've really been doing things and connect them to these issues. It's not only about how racism has limited the mobility, the possibility, and the potential of black and brown people in very particular ways. It is about that. How it's not only about that happening, 
on the land in relation to environment and non-human nature, even though it is about that. It is also about the resilience and the creativity and the innovative potential in spite of that that's been happening anyway. You know, I lived in Florida for a year when I was working on this research, so I could live in proximity to Everglades National Park, Biscayne National Park, and Big Cypress National Preserve. And Miami is about an hour from the Everglades. And at the time, it was a predominantly white staff, some really thoughtful, hardworking folks down at the National Park. And one of the things they were interested in is getting more African-American, Latinx folks up or down to the park itself. Now, one of the challenges, of course, at the time, no public transportation, the assumption that everybody's got a car, you know, there were a lot of issues around that. But somebody at the time made a comment and said, you know, well, Black people don't, you know, they're not that interested in the environment and nature. They're not out in it. Now, the Everglades as a park exists within these defined boundaries, but the Everglades as a place is all over the southern part of the state, which means that the canals, the waterways, you can drive all around Miami and parts of South Florida and see this. Every day I was out there, you could see black and brown people fishing. Every day, whether it was a social activity, getting food, a little bit of both, just relaxing, they're out there every day. When I mentioned that, the response was, oh yeah, but that doesn't count. And I said, now that is actually the issue. Right. You know, the thing is, this is not about bad and good people. This for me is not useful. But again, what we prioritize, what we privilege, what we think is important to notice, that doesn't count. Well, damn, that leaves out a whole lot of people, <laughs> a whole lot of experience of place and an opportunity to actually build a different kind of relationship. So I want to tell three stories of three people. Some of you may have heard of already. Some of you may have not. But and I could have told a thousand stories of people who have always been there and whose legacy in some cases is still present. I love to talk about Mavin Betch. Mavin Betch came from Florida. Her family lived on Amelia Island, right off the coast of, jo of Jacksonville. They came, she came from a very wealthy black family. Her grand great-grandfather, A.L. Lewis, was the first man black or white to have a life insurance company. This was during the 30s, 40s, and 50s. But even though he had a lot of money, it was during the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So guess what? If you were black, you couldn't go to the same beach as white people. So A.L. Lewis decided, well, we can't go to the same beach. I'm just going to buy a beach. So he bought a beach on Amelia Island. It's called American Beach. It's still there. You could be a black janitor, black judge. You could live on that beach. It's got beautiful sand dunes. You could bring your family to the beach. This is where Mavin grew up. Mavin's sister is actually quite famous in academic circles. It's Jonetta Cole. So Mavin went off to Oberlin College. She decided she wanted to be an opera singer. She went to Germany. She was there for quite a number of years. And then she got really interested in environmental causes. Somewhere in the 70s, I think she was supporting a man who was studying the monarch butterfly. You know, she would fund him. Um, she would give money to groups that she was really interested for some reason in pygmy communities, she said, in Africa. And she was giving money to those. She came back to the United States and she gave all of her wealth away to environmental causes. Over $750,000, including the house that she had lived in, right? It had been bequeathed to her by a great grandfather. She gave it away. She was living on a chaise lounge on the beach. When I asked Mavine about that, if she was scared, she said, no, nah, I had a big stick. Eventually, her sister Jonetta got her a trailer that she moved into, but she probably turned it into a little mini museum. And then she focused on the place itself, because what was happening, Amelia Island sits in between two other beach resorts, Amelia Island Plantation and Fernandina Beach Resort. And developers were chomping at the bit. There's a maritime forest there, the sand dunes, everything they wanted to do. So Mavine started to get folks together to fight for the place, to, to fight to protect the maritime forest and fight to protect the African-American history in place. They weren't separate than that. One of my favorite stories of Mavine that I like to tell, she said, at this time and all these fights are going on and, you know, and there's public meetings that you can come and air your grievances. Mavine was a very, you can see that's how Mavine looked. What she's holding under her arm was all her dreadlocks. Her hair was so long, the way she showed up, which means when she walked into a room, it wasn't like you couldn't see her. But the way she told me the story was, she says, so there was a civic meeting, she said, and I, she goes, I came in in the back and they were doing the Pledge of Allegiance. So I joined in, you know, like nobody saw her. 
But she, she said, I, do. I pledge of allegiance to the flag, to the United States of America, and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice. And she shut out, for all white people who got money. <laughs> and then she'd be like, and then everybody saw me. And I was like, Mabine, I'm sorry to say this, they saw you at the get-go. At the end of the day, she worked with people from the Park Service, as well as others to protect 8.2 acres of sand dunes. And she has sort of cemented her legacy as the beach lady. She passed away not long after that. She'd been um, suffering from cancer for some time, but her legacy is still there. She said to me, one of the most powerful things anybody's ever said to me is that I'm the freest person you will ever meet. When I gave away the money, I was able to do exactly what it is I wanted and needed to do. I always like to talk about this beautiful man, John Francis. Have you, I don't know, have any of you heard of this beautiful man, John Francis? John Francis in the 70s lived in Northern California. He said there was a small oil spill there, really upset him. So he decided for a while he wasn't gonna take any kind of motorized transport, he'd just walk everywhere. Friends and family were always trying to pick him up, make him get in the car, he wouldn't, he'd get in fights with them because you know how that is, because you're doing, you're doing something different than everybody else. He decided he wasn't gonna talk about it anymore. And John spent the next 22 years walking across the US and Latin America to raise environmental awareness. And he did it for 17 years without talking. He got his PhD at the University of Wisconsin without talking. He started talking on Earth Day when he had to defend his dissertation. When he did his dissertation, Exxon Valdez had happened. Soon after that, when Exxon Valdez happened in 1989, he was the only person in the United States that had done a PhD on oil spills, right? So John would tell me at this point he's in New England. He's still not using motorized transport. He rides his bike, but he's talking. He said he was working on a friend's boat or doing something like that, earning some money. He gets a call from DC, like, can you come down and interview for this position? Because we know Exxon Valdez, we got to be really thinking about this. He says, sure, I will. They're like, we'll send you a plane ticket. He's like, I ain't taking a plane. They're like, how about a bus ticket, train ticket? He's like, no. They're like, how are you going to get here? He said, I'm going to ride my bike. They're like, how long is that going to take? He said, a month. They waited. He rode his bike. He interviewed. He got the job. He's one of our early architects of our early oil spill policy. John created an organization called Planet Walk. And he's taking groups of people to Cuba, set up satellite systems so school kids in the US and Cuba can kind of talk about sustainability and see what each other are doing. John decided to write a book about this in the early 2000s called Planet Walker about his experience, right? Do you know he couldn't find anybody to publish a story about a black man who spent 22 years walking across the US to raise environmental awareness, 17 years of talking, because we've got so many of those in the nature section. He couldn't find anybody to publish it, so he self-published it. Eventually, National Geographic, which years earlier did not want to do a story about him when he was walking across the United States, imagine that, decided that they would self-publish. They would publish the book for him. They made him a National Geographic fellow. Hollywood has bought the rights, and it's been a number of years now, man, but we're waiting to see what's going to happen to tell this story on the screen. And often when I tell people that, they say, well, Hollywood's probably going to mess it up. And I say, I don't care who makes the movie but that somebody make the movie. Because the question of representation, people will come to that movie to see, I don't know, Will Smith, you know, Idris Elba, whoever's playing him in the, Idris Elba's my book, whoever plays him in the movie, that's who they'll come to see. But what they will also see is somebody who gave up everything because of their concern about the environment. Their commitment was 100% all the time. And that's a powerful message, not just for black people who look like him or brown people, but for all people to understand that that resilience, that innovation, that potential is everywhere, right, is everywhere.
I want to talk about Brenda Baum's barber. She was originally from Colorado. This was maybe now 10, 15 years ago. She got a call from some folks in Chicago who said, can you come here and help us? We have a lot of previously incarcerated black men and women who can't find a job. Can you help us think about something? And she said, sure. She moved there, got to know the community. They were thinking of things like landscape gardening, driving around the elderly. All these ideas weren't bad. She didn't think they had real legs. And then she said she had a random conversation with a friend about beekeeping. And that's when she decided, oh, that's what we're going to do. We're going to make urban honey on the west side of Chicago. And she said everybody thought she was crazy. So she created the business Sweet Beginnings, which makes honey and honey-related products. It's, the business is incredibly successful. But I tell you all the story really quickly to get at the piece, the kernel that I really want to tell you about, is that she would talk to me about how she would interview these young Black men and women for a job. She would be, if I was there, we were all there live. I'd be in front of you right now. I'd come into the audience and stand in front of you. And she said, so you want a job? And they said, yes. And she'd look at them and say, so you were in jail? And they would say, yeah, they kind of look a little, you know, looking down at the floor a little bit. And she says, so what were you in jail for? And they said, well, usually something like selling drugs. And she would do a kind of dramatic pause about it when they'd say selling drugs. She'd be, hmm, so were you good at it? And they kind of perk up a little bit, like, yeah, until I got caught. And she says, so what were you good at? And they would respond, well, I understood the quality of my product. I understood the value of my customer base. And they'd rattle off all these skills. And she'd say, honey, great. We're going to transfer those skills over here. And the reason I like to tell that story is because people have heard me say, I don't use the term outreach anymore, right? As someone who's been outreached to, I understand that there's a good intention behind it. But outreach sets up a certain power dynamic. You get to outreach to me. You get to bring me to your table. You make space for me at the table. But you don't have to learn anything about me. I have to learn everything about you, the culture, the mission statement, everything else. Nothing actually changes except for me. And I don't even know if I stick around because... <laughs> that's a lot of work to do. So I have to uphold all that while also being the voice of difference in the room instead of building a relationship of reciprocity and understanding that no one knows everything, but everything that everybody you engage with has embodied knowledge. So even if they don't have a single degree, even if they're young, doesn't mean they don't have some sense of themselves in the space in which they live. And I'm willing to bet dimes to donuts that they know their community better than you do, right? And so how do we meet people where they are, and build a relationship of reciprocity that acknowledges what they already have. One of the most powerful moments was about a year or two after I met her. She invited me to Chicago, and there was some kind of ceremony, and she wanted to thank me, and then she wanted to acknowledge some of these young men and women. And one of these young Black men, he got up there in a suit that he looked way too uncomfortable in, and there were about 100 of us in the room, and his head was down, and the first thing that he said was, I never knew green could be so good to me. And I still burst into tears every time I say it because it was so heartfelt. And it really changed the nature of when we say green, what do we actually mean? And for him, he understood it in a way as before. what it inferred was that before it was never there for them and it didn't include him and it wasn't about him and it could never see him. And now it can and he can contribute in a very particular way. The last thing. So in 2016, that was my last year, I think, on the National Parks Advisory Board. I'm also a geographer in terms of my doctoral training. And so I, I went to the annual geography conference. But about eight of us have been asked as geographers to be set on this plenary session. And we were all asked the question, is John Muir still relevant? That was the question. And we were all geographers, but from different parts of the field, physical geographers, historical geographers. I call myself a cultural geographer, political ecologist. So you're going to have a wide range, you know, diverse people sitting up there to answer that question. And when I was preparing for this, I was like, oh, okay, so I, we had 10 minutes to answer the question. How am I going to answer this? Blah, 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 blah. And I started thinking about it, actually. 
I started thinking about a book by um, Alice Randall, who's a black author who in the early 2000s at the time was at Harvard. And she had been thinking about Gone with the Wind, you know, the movie and the book Gone with the Wind, Gone with the Wind by Margaret Mitchell, The South, focused on Scarlett O'Hara and what happens, the, black, the backdrop of slavery, but you know, Scarlett O'Hara and her family. And Alice Randall at the time was thinking, what if a black woman wrote it? And so she wrote a version of Gone with the Wind called The Wind Gone. And the focus was Scarlett O'Hara's half mulatto sister. That's how it's described. And I got the book and I was like, oh, ah, you know, and she wasn't trying to be funny for me. Though, if you try to buy the book now, the Margaret Mitchell estate made her put a parody on there. She wasn't trying to parody. She was trying to provide some insight. What if you took the story from a different perspective? So I started thinking about that in relation to John Muir which is why I said I took his book, A Thousand Mile Walk Through the Gulf in 1867. He walked through Kentucky and a lot of Southern states and even Cuba. Uh, what I understand is he wants to look at the impact of war on the landscape. And this is a very thoughtful man, right? So I got his book and I pull out, I read a couple of quotes from some German, uh, some journal entries that he made. And I would read them about his views of nature. He was really thoughtful about that, right? He, he looked at a sunset or his experience of the woods. But I interspersed that with his exact words of the things he was saying about black people, which there's no gentle way to say it. We're kind of racist, you know? And it was interspersed with this other, wow, really thoughtful, deep, moving man. So I read those things and then I told the audience, I started to imagine, what if a black woman had written this? And I called it, a thousand mile walk was rough, right? And so then I started, I created things. Like I said, in 1867, you know, I called her Sojourner Washington Douglas, and she had to duck and weave through a hostile landscape. She was too dark to pass as white, so she had to use the woods in the back road. But then I used real facts of lynchings going on at that time in places like Colfax, Louisiana. And the difference is I kept going. So when it hit 1890, I said, Jim Crow is the man. 1900, Jim Crow is the man. 1910, Jim Crow's the man. I kept going. So 1940, when Sojourner Washington Douglas passed away, and Jim Crow was still the man. So I sort of let that sit with the audience. I did it all in like five minutes, right? I, was like, and I did a second five minutes and said, and then I wanted to imagine, what if John Muir and I had a conversation? I was the only African-American on the National Parks Advisory Board. What would that look like? And I was really thinking of the book Rap on Race, which is an incredible transcribed conversation between James Baldwin and the anthropologist Margaret Mead. It's really amazing, right? I love it. And so I was imagining, I had some high flutin ideas, you know. I wasn't comparing myself to James Baldwin, but I was imagining what happens when you get two thoughtful people in the room who are very different. And so I just write a single scene of inviting him over to my apartment in Lexington, Kentucky, right? And I was going to invite him over and serve him green tea. And I made it kind of funny that he was just looking shocked the entire time. And I was wondering, does he imagine me cleaning his house? He's kind of like freaked out. He doesn't quite know what to do. And I'm dropping tidbits about Shelton Johnson, the Black Park Ranger in Yosemite National Park, who was even on Oprah. But then I kind of give an aside to the audience. I ain't even going to tell John Muir about Oprah because that's just too much information for his head. I'm watching it explode, right? So I kind of do all of this. And then at the end of the day, I said, you know, I know you need to process my wilderness brother, so I'm going to let you go. Let's plan to meet again. And then I sort of looked to the audience and said, the question about whether John Muir is um, still relevant is actually for me not the question. Is that he becomes relevant on my terms. It's not him or me. It's actually us. And it's complex and it's complicated. The thing that I can embrace about John Muir is that he was a thoughtful man and committed his life to non-human nature in a real and intentional way. What I can't embrace about John Muir is that he was a racist, that at that time he could never see me, but it doesn't mean I'm not there. And I don't need to cancel him out to suddenly be there. Because actually a lot of who he is and how he showed, how he, what he's contributed has influenced my thinking whether I like it or not. What happens when we come together and actually hold the complexity? Why do we have such a hard time doing that? Why is it one or the other? 
Why can't we recognize that? Because that gets at the heart of who we are and our capacity to change and our willingness to actually step forward differently. So I'm working on a one woman show where I really want to turn this into an hour of what if he and I had this conversation. And I think the last thing I want to say, the two things I always say is taking a risk. What does it mean to take a risk in order to gain? So back to Senator Clyburn's comment about, you know, if there's five steps between us, I'm willing to take three. What does taking three steps look like? And this is never, ever about being comfortable. I think I've kind of made that clear that so many of us have never, ever been comfortable. The continuum of Christian Cooper and George Floyd is just that it's on a continuum. It's not this incident and this incident on a hierarchy. It's a continuum of experience that has been around for 400 years, in particular for non-white people, even more in particular for black people. It's very particular, right? So on one end of that spectrum, you can be killed showing up in certain spaces as black. On another, and a space that I've occupied quite a lot myself, is you can just always be feeling insecure because you never know for sure. And that does not change because you've walked into some beautiful outdoor surrounding. The last thing I want to say about that is that there is a, was a story this summer about a young 15-year-old Black girl. Her name was Brianna Nelson Hicks. Uh, she lived with her grandfather. They're African-American in Wellington, Florida, which is a very wealthy, predominantly white neighborhood. And she was, I guess, right in front of the house where she lives with her two white friends. So she's 15. And there's a video of an older white man yelling at her, telling her she does not belong there. You want to know how fast I flash back to when I was little getting stopped by the policeman back in the late 60s? Like it just went, Shit. that's the continuum. That's the reality. So for me, it's like, what choices do we make? How do we move forward? Again, it's not about being comfortable. What are we willing to risk in order to get there? Indeed, indeed. What a terrific message for the year. What are we really willing to risk? to achieve the goals we claim we want in this crazy year of so much tumult and change. Well, that was a great lecture given by Dr. Carolyn Finney, author of Black Faces, White Spaces at the November 14th annual chapter meeting of the Kentucky Sierra Club. You're tuned in to Ford Radio and Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg. Stay tuned in just a minute. Get your pencil sharpened and your calendars out. Get ready to take action for sustainability as we move in to 2021. Stay tuned, my friends. by hearing from Carolyn Finney today and are ready to take action for sustainability this week. It all starts on Tuesday, December 29th at 8 p.m. with the Poor People's Campaign. We must do more Georgia. Jump off for the runoff, a Zoom voter rally. You can join the co-chairs of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. That's Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II and Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris on Tuesday for a 
a Zoom voter rally at 8 p.m. hosted by the Georgia Poor People's Campaign. We'll hear how folks are doing more in the Georgia runoff, mobilizing, organizing, registering, and educating people for a movement that votes. This virtual event will feature stories and updates from folks on the ground sharing ways to plug in during the last push towards Georgia's runoff election on January 5th, which will decide which party controls the U.S. Senate. All are welcome, but you must register to attend via Zoom, and you can do so at bit.ly slash Georgia Moore, M-O-R-E. And also, I wanted to let you know that December 31st marks the end of early bird pricing and scholarship applications. That's the deadline for this uh, upcoming Organic Association of Kentucky conference taking place at the end of January, January 26th through the 30th. It's still time to reserve your spot and save. You can consider a conference registration, maybe it's a holiday gift or a New Year's resolution gift for that special farmer or local food advocate in your life. Conference scholarships are also available to those who apply by December 31st. The 10th Annual Organic Association of Kentucky Conference will be virtual and will be amazing with a trade show, farmers roundtables, keynote speakers, Leah Panaman of Soul Fire Farm, uh, many other great ones. So you won't want to miss it. You can register at Oak, O-A-K-K-Y dot O-R-G by December 31st for early bird pricing and any scholarship applications. Now, coming up on the new year, Friday, January 1st of 2021, consider ringing in the new year with the World Day of Peace, a virtual interfaith prayer service on Friday the 1st, 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. On New Year's Day, the community comes together with united vice calling for global peace. This beautiful and powerful event brings leaders from all faiths and cultures, Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, Jewish, Native American, and Baha'i, together to join forces to strengthen world peace. Join us for this contemplative gathering and take part in interfaith prayers and aspirations for a new year of peace, nonviolence, and care for all beings. Reflective, focused, and inspiring. You can find the link to join at paths2peace.org. That's paths2peace.org. Also on Saturday, January 2nd at 1 p.m., Bernheim Arboretum and Research Forest is hosting a winter wander and observation hike. Yes, get out in nature, even in wintertime. Winter provides an inspiration and an invitation to notice the spaces and shapes created by the bare bones of deciduous trees and the more subtle colors and textures of the landscape. Winter also gives us opportunities to slow down and notice the little things, the surprise packages of brightly colored seed pods, the rustling of dried grasses in the prairies, overwintering moth cocoons, praying mantis egg cases, and so much more. Join interpretive programs manager Ren Smith and Bernheim naturalists for this hike designed to help you find beauty and wonder in unexpected places. The hike will have a limited number of participants to allow for distancing, and masks will be required. It's recommended for adults, but children aged 10 and older are also welcome. Registration is required by 4 p.m. this Friday, and you can do so by calling 502-955-8512 or going online to bernheim.org. 
And that is all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. It has been wonderful having your company throughout 2020. And man, 2021 is going to be even better, my friends. So get ready for it. Get ready to take action for sustainability throughout the new year. Happy New Year. And I'll be back in your ears again next year.